Well, as you can see from our overhead here, the title of this morning's message is Pray for All Men. Pray for All Men. As I was thinking about prayer, I couldn't help but thinking about some of the, just the traditional, our tradition of prayer here even in this church. And most of you are aware of this, but some of you maybe are not. But on Wednesday evenings, we have a midweek service here. So the, the two main gatherings that we have each week here at this church is on Sunday morning, like we're gathered here now, and then on Wednesday evenings, usually it's at 6.30. And as we have a midweek service, well, it's not that different from this other than there's usually a more specific or intentional time for prayer there. And so as you think about that midweek service, we'll gather, we'll sing a song, have a message from teaching from the Word of God, an opportunity for fellowship, but we typically ask for prayer requests after each Wednesday evening service. And then once we've taken the prayer requests, we provide a time for believers to pray together following that evening message. And it's not something that's mandatory or it's just it's an opportunity to do that and many people take advantage of that where they would gather with one or two other people and just pray together you think about even doing that as a family unit perhaps that's something that you do there's there's great value in your personal walk with the lord but there's value in corporately then walking together even as a family praying together and it's something that uh, is worth promoting if it's not something that you've ever you've ever done before try praying with your children you know, we talk to our children about a lot of things. We interact with them in a lot of ways, but one of the ways we can interact with them, and you'll find plenty of examples of men and women of faith gathering together to pray together. Not, not just praying individually, which is also something you can find many biblical examples of that, but there's lots of examples of corporate prayer, praying together. So try that in the car sometimes instead of bickering about something. You know, just try as you're in the car saying, hey kids, instead of, you know, fighting with each other, let's, let's take turns and let's, Let's pray together. And sometimes you have to help them with that. Uh, the natural tendency for a child is that they don't really know what to pray or how to pray. And even the disciples were no different than that. Many of you maybe recall that Jesus actually gave them some examples or some illustra- an illustration of how to pray because they didn't know what they should even pray for or how they should pray. And so he gave them even a, you know, a sample or an illustration of what prayer might look like. Not so that they could repeat that one prayer of Jesus over and over again with emptiness, with no thought towards what they were even saying, but so that they'd have an idea of some of the framework or maybe some of the structure of some of the types of things that you could want to pray about. So this is again going off track here a bit, but with your children, maybe you have to say something like, you know, while we're driving here for five minutes from here to the school to drop you off for an event or an activity or we're running an errand, why don't, while we drive here, why don't you think of three people that were in your cabin this last summer at camp that you could pray for? Because you're trying to teach them that we can certainly pray that we would have a good time and that it would be a good day and that we'd have a lot of fun and that, you know, these are the kinds of things that generally are the first things that will come to their mind. But as you're encouraging them to have a focus on the thing that God focuses most on, which is people, you might point them in a direction of, how about three people from your cabin last summer? How about three people from the town we used to live in that you've somewhat lost track of those people, but you still have some memories of going to school with some of them? How about, how about some of them? How about three people that used to be in the church we went to when we were living in 
Duluth? Or how about three people that are in our family? Or how about try to think of all 13 of your cousins and pray for them? Now, just the idea being that praying with your kids, praying with your family, praying collectively as a group of brothers and sisters in Christ, there's value in it. So at the end of that service on, on Wednesday nights, we, we do try to make an opportunity for that. Now, for several years now, I've been collecting those prayer requests and sending out a prayer list that covers the last several months of prayer requests. Now, we couldn't have an indefinite uh, list where it would just go on and on and on because of the length the length that it would grow to or it did grow to. So I just said, you know what? You can keep all of the older versions of that prayer list when you print them out. But the, the one I'm going to send out is going to be limited to, to roughly three months and that actually changed to roughly two pages. So if it, sometimes it's four or five months that fit onto two pages. So there you go. But I send that out. If you're here this morning and you're saying, hey, I've, I'd like to get that prayer list. Then, then you'll have to text me or email me and say, here's my email address and I can add you to the group email list that we have here at church, which is how you know about things that would be going on as I send emails out to that group mail. But in any event, we have that prayer request list. And as you look at that list, and many of you do, I know, but as you look at that list, the majority of those prayer requests involve the physical and spiritual needs of somebody whose life intersects in some way with the one who's requesting prayer on that person's behalf. And so as you think of through that list, most of it wasn't the person who's on the list saying, hey, could you pray for me and would that be appropriate? Absolutely. Uh, and there's some prayer requests like that where hey, I have a need, I have something that I'm going through in my life, could, could you let the, my brothers and sisters know about it? Could you pass the word, spread the word so that they can be praying for me? Is that a good thing? That's a great thing. That's absolutely appropriate. But if you look at the list, you'd notice that most of the things that are on the list are in fact people that are being, having prayer requested for them by other brothers and sisters that have come into contact with them. And some of the prayer requests are, are for physical things. Some of them are for spiritual things. A lot of them are for, you know, people's salvation, for their spiritual encouragement, for their spiritual comfort, for their spiritual growth. And so as you look at that prayer request, there's an awful lot of people who saw the value in requesting prayer on behalf of somebody else. And you'll, you'll find that as you look at the list that that's true. The other thing is that some of those prayer requests on that list are permanent. They're up at the top and it just says permanent prayer requests and they cover almost everybody in the church. Married, married people, single people, families, young people and old people. That covers just about everybody. And the truth is, is that the idea behind that is there's, there's never a time where marriages in our church don't need prayer, families in our church don't need prayer, single folks in our church don't need prayer, older folks in our church don't need prayer, young people in our church don't need prayer. There's an infinite amount of prayer that could take place just based on those permanent ones, especially if you went beyond the, the general and you tried to mentally go to the specific and put a face to some of those requests saying, well, who are some of the single folks? that are in our congregation. And you start thinking about it and, and you start praying for those people individually instead of just the collective group. You could spend, frankly, all of your free time praying. That's why it says, man, not always to pray or pray without ceasing. The reality is that there's plenty of things you could be talking to God about as it relates to your own life and as it relates to the lives of others. One of the other prayer requests that you'll see on the permanent part of that is a permanent prayer request for our nation's leaders. And you think about, we're going to cover that in our prayer here and, and the appropriateness of that. It's going to come out in our prayer 
here that we look at from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy this morning. And that's on our permanent prayer list, is to be praying for those that are in authority, people that are leaders, so that they would have a godly mentality, they would have a godly mindset, that they could be saved, that they could provide for or be used or to have wisdom, that the Lord could work through them to even bring about a way of life religious freedom even especially, that would promote or be most beneficial to the mission. You know, when we're praying, we're not praying about our own opinions about how society should be run or those kinds of things. We're, we're praying about the mission that God, through national leaders, could work and undertake in our lives and in the lives of other people in our country so that the truth of Jesus, the truth of God's word, could be communicated most wi- It could spread most quickly and it could spread most widely and it could be most effective. That should be the first and foremost of our prayers. Then you can talk about godliness or matters of what God says the standards of what right, our right are and that the, the nation could move in a direction where we exalt godliness and the things that God prioritizes. There's other prayers that could flow from that, but first and foremost is always we should be praying with an eye towards what is our focus as Christians supposed to be to begin with. What is the mission that we've been assigned? What, what is the task that God has said, this is the thing that I want you to be focused on as you run toward this objective, toward this prize, as you run this race that I've set in front of you. Now another is for the salvation, if we're talking about the permanent part of our prayer list here, another is for the salvation of all the unsaved in our community. That's another one of our permanent prayer requests. And so as you think about just even these things that I've touched on here from our own church's prayer list, there's this tradition here at this church of diverse prayer for people of all kinds and types of connections, and it's very biblical. You see, God wants believers to be steadfast and constant in their prayer for all men. And that's why there's so many people listed, so many categories of people listed, because that's God's will for our lives, that we would be praying for all men, and that's where we get our title, Pray for All Men. Now, it comes from this passage this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You can turn there if you're not there already, which communicates this principle as clearly as any other passage that we'll find in the New Testament about this need to pray for people of all kinds, all types of people, all men in general, that we would be praying for them. One category within that general group, of course, being praying for kings and all those who are in authority, which we'll see in as we go through this passage. So let's take a closer look, starting with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Why don't we read this section, and that way we'll have the, the full context of what it is that we're covering this morning. He says, therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, Now, what's a part of that? Well, a part of that group is for kings and all who are in authority, with what objective in mind, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now, are you sure this is what God wants us to be doing? Yes, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So there's our passage for this morning, Lord willing. We'll start with verse 1 here. 1 Timothy 2.1, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Guess what? 
if you believe that this is true and you're convicted about this and you let the Lord persuade your thinking as it relates to this, you no longer have any free time. Those of you who just wander through life just wondering, what could I possibly do with all this time I have on my hands? Of course, none of you are doing that. Life is filled up pretty quick, isn't it, with all of these cares of this world, cares of this life, some of them important, some of them not important. I would say most of them less important than we think they are. But so you say, how could I be doing this? I don't have any time for that. And the good news about it is that in terms of multitasking, there's not many things that you could do at the same time you're doing something else, but this is one of them. Guess what? You can get dressed in the morning while you're praying. Guess what? You can drive your car to work while you're praying. You may not be able to focus on a specific task at work and be praying at the same time. That's true. But you're going to have a break time. You're going to have a lunch time. You're going to have a drive home. There's going to be time where you're cooking dinner, washing dishes. There's going to be a time where you're mowing the lawn. You're working on your car. I'll tell you what, when you're working on a car, you might be well served to be praying. <laughs> some, some of you uh, wrench hands are like, what are you talking about? Working on cars is easy. Well, not for me. When I'm working on things like that, it's a challenge. So maybe, maybe starting that with some prayer and just praying your way through that would be beneficial, right? Then your kids wouldn't learn all this language that they don't need to know. You joke a little bit about these things, but you know they're true, right? You think about all the time that you could be praying instead of fainting, praying instead of worrying, praying instead of losing your mind, losing your temper. Oh, there's a lot of opportunity for it throughout life, but that's not even the point here of this, this verse that we're looking at. This, the exhortation is being made, though. So when you see this section, therefore I, exer- I exhort you first of all. And the idea here is I urge you before anything else or as a matter of primary importance. So before anything else and as a matter of primary importance, I'm urging you. And this exhortation is communicated to the whole church through Timothy. This isn't just some sort of a urging that Paul has for Timothy himself, though it's written to Timothy. It's, it's meant to be, as Timothy's a pastor, it's meant to then be communicated as a general principle for every believer. And so then what is the exhortation? What is he urging him to do? We move a little farther in the verse. That, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. But let's start with all of these different descriptions of prayer. These words all refer to different aspects of conversing with God. So aspects of prayer or talking to God. Prayer is not a fancy word. Prayer just means to talk or communicate or interact with God verbally or mentally. It's a way of communicating and sharing, living life with and interacting with God in a way where you're having some conversation or communication with him. Now, these words are all synonyms in some way, in some ways. <clears throat> they, they don't need to be overly differentiated in the sense that a lot of these words actually could be translated just with the word prayer. So you see like that term prayer there, prayers, it's viewed as a general term describing any communication with God, but the word itself means to bring something into view, to bring something into view. Tell God something. You know, it, prayer is not complicated. It's, hey God, or dear God, or Father God, or Jesus. We've seen some 
examples of praying directly to Jesus and then telling him something. That's it. That's how you would have a conversation with anyone. You would get their attention, though God is always aware of what's going on, but just in normal, you would say, you would say, hey, Sean, and then I would tell Sean something, right? Or hey, Shelly, and then I'd tell Shelly something. And so that's it. You're just talking to somebody. And now these other words, there's a little bit of nuance to them, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but the remaining three words, they're identifying a little bit of nuances within that conversation. So we're talking about having a conversation, communicating with God. What are some of the nuances? Well, supplications refers to making a request or asking God for help. That's not very different. That's what I mean. Some of these words are somewhat interchangeable in the sense that intercessions focuses on appealing boldly to God on behalf of another. So you'd be asking God for help on behalf of somebody else would be an intercession then. So the supplication could be anyone asking God for assistance or help. You're, You're requesting or making a request to God, but then when you're interceding, you're generally doing that on behalf of somebody else or another. Some, as I was looking through some of the different uh, Greek helps on these words. Some, some of the scholars take with intercession a little bit more of a focus on not so much that you're asking for help on behalf of somebody, but the posture that you have while you're approaching God. This idea that you have this bold and confident posture toward God where you would be coming to him, you'd be bringing or making him aware of, bringing a care, a concern to him, and you'd be doing it confidently and boldly. And I like that. Because the Bible tells us that that's true, that we can come boldly or confidently to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Maybe I messed that up. And so that's the posture that we should have towards God. He's, again, as you think about how I see God is very important. How how I'm going to relate to God is going to be determined by how do I view God or see God. And so when you think about studying God's word or being interested in how God reveals himself to us so that I may know him, I could understand him and see him more for who he really is, what he's all about, his character. And as I see that, it would impact the posture or my mentality as I would come to him and want to talk to him and relate to him. And I, and I hope we see that. God isn't this distant, the God revealed through the pages of Scripture isn't this punitive God who's looking to smack his children. It's not this angry God who is, is desperate to judge his children. It's not a distant God who wants nothing to do with his children, who never hears, who has no awareness of what's going on in the lives of his children. It's not a God who is a God of the corporate or a God of the collective group, but not a God of the individual relationship. That's not the God revealed in the pages of Scripture. He's a personal, intimate, loving God who cares deeply for his children and wants to undertake to live life in close proximity to them and to teach them to trust and depend on him in every facet of their lives so that they would be near to him and enjoying a right relationship with him and walking with him and talking with him. 
That's the kind of God that we're dealing with. Now, as you see God in that way, it would affect the posture that you would approach him with these concerns, with these requests, especially when you're fulfilling the mission, which is to be living life in a way that God could be shining through you to have an impact on others. Now, wouldn't it make a father happy if that was his objective for his child's life? That was his desire for his child's life, to watch his child then come boldly and confidently to the throne of grace and say, Father, there's this person that you put in my life and I have this prayer request for them. The very thing the father had been hoping his child would be willing to do, would be willing to trust him with, the the way that he'd want his child to be living his life and the child is now doing that and saying, God, you've given me your kind of burden for people. You've given me your kind of love for people. Your spirit is producing that kind of mindset and thinking and love through me as I keep my focus on you and I have my gaze fixed on you and I'm trusting you and I'm depending on you and your spirit is working and moving in my life and you're transforming me into the image of your son. And as that's true, now I have this heart, this desperate heart for people like you have that heart for people, God. Can you imagine how satisfying that would be to him? Can you, imagine, can you think of even times in your own life where people that you cared about and you were hopeful that they would live life in, that kind of, in a certain kind of a way and you see them doing it? The joy that that would bring to you? And so you think about that. Now, if you're sitting here and you're like, that perspective... Uh, that objective in living life in that kind of way is new to me. I, I had no idea that God was concerned, was wanted to produce in and through me a love for him first and then that he would want to work through me to have an impact on other people. That he would want to give me the vision that he has and the heart that he has and the perspective that he has about people. I didn't, I didn't even understand that. I, I've been just living for myself. I've been just focused on making myself happy. I've been focused on doing whatever it is that occurred to me at any moment in my life that would be, provide the greatest sense of satisfaction for me personally. Well, hopefully that was a little bit of a wake-up call. Hopefully, if you already knew that, but you're not allowing him to produce that mindset and then a way of life that's consistent with that in your life, maybe that would be something to come to him now in prayer and say, Lord, I... I can say the same thing as you about this. I haven't been living my life in a way that would be honoring you or would be redeeming the time that you've given me. So in any event, as you're thinking about these, sup- these intercessions, that's the idea, that you'd have that bold, confident approach to God, perhaps, but on behalf of another person. And I think as you think about this exhortation that we would be doing that, that's something that is communicated pretty clearly in that word intercession because it has a focus on boldly approaching God on behalf of another. Now, what's the last one in terms of these nuances of this conversation that we're having with God? And we're gonna see it's about all the people that God has put in our lives. It says giving of thanks. And that's simple. That just involves an expression of gratitude directed to God, but directed to God about what? Well, now we have it here. Therefore, I exhort you first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks be made for all men. So be made just indicates the importance of these prayers actually occurring. It's not think about doing this. It's letting God convince you that this is, this is something that should be true of your life. 
that these kinds of prayers on behalf of other people, all men, would be made. Not just that they, they could be done, but that they actually would be occurring. And then we focus on for all men. Pray for all men, and this is really the emphasis of this section is pray for all men. If you wanted to summarize it, I exhort you to pray for all men is how you would, would be the takeaway here. Everything else modifies that, contributes to our understanding of that. It, it, it is a, in addition to that, but the general, the main thought is that. Now for all men, it's a broad and all-encompassing directive. I hope you see that. There's not a lot of room there for stick handling and saying, well, I think God wants me to pray for these kinds of people or these specific people, but I don't think he cares if I pray for these other people. That's not it. It's very direct. I urge you, I exhort you that these prayers be made for all men. And the focus is probably more on all kinds of people versus every person on the planet. The emphasis is praying for people of various kinds and roles that are in your sphere of interaction, awareness, and influence. Let me say that again. People of various kinds and roles that are in your sphere of interaction, awareness, and influence. I don't think it's wrong to just say, Lord, pray for every person on the planet. I don't know who they all are, but I want to bring them to you in prayer this morning, this evening, during this drive to work. Nothing wrong with that either. God does know who all of them are, and then you could pray something specific about the general mass of humanity. But I don't think that's the focus here. I think the focus here is on people that they have some awareness of, that they've had some interaction with, uh, people that are in their spheres of influence, and he's saying, pray for all of the people that I've put into your periphery, uh, into your into your vision, your field of vision. That's how I would take this, is that the primary focus is on people who are in your field of vision. Now, that's very broad. That by itself is very broad. It's people that you know only, you know about them, you've heard about them. I mean, you could make some, come up with some examples here, but um, let's just say in a community. There's lots of people who you know generally who they are, but you don't know them really at all. Well, could you pray for that person? Sure. Yeah, it, it could be some, somebody that you haven't really interacted with much at all, but there's somebody that's come into your field of vision, your periphery, where you've, you've seen them, you actually know who they are. Sometimes, sometimes it might be the parent of a child that you're coaching on a basketball team. Sometimes it might be somebody who you know is on the school board that you voted for or voted against, maybe. <laughs> maybe that'd be the one to pray for. Uh, but that you could vote, you could pray for them because you're aware, you're aware of them. And there's no way you're going to be able to keep track of all of this, but the point just being that your life is filled with minutes and moments that could be used to bring people and lift people up to the Lord for consideration in prayer as you're thinking about them and having a concern for them. So then, of course, it includes all of the people that you have more direct connections with, your coworkers, your neighbors, the young people that you've had some dealings with, your own relatives, your own family, the people in your local church family, the people that used to be a part of your church family, that the minute they left, left or moved off to somewhere else, you quit praying for them. That's convicting, isn't it? It's people that you, you know, loved as a brother or sister in Christ, but they got some kind of a burr under their saddle or whatever happened and they moved off. Sometimes they just moved away, but other times actually, there was actually some conflict and, and they moved on or they moved away and never thought about them again, never prayed for them again. You know, that's something that we're kind of bad about sometimes is that if people aren't in our immediate 
sphere of interactions, we just don't pray for them at all. But in any event, this is a very wide category, isn't it? And so if you're going to summarize the main point of this section is, I urge you as a matter of primary importance to pray for all people. And too often, we read this one example that's given in verse 2 and we miss the primary point. The primary point of this passage has nothing to do with kings and those who are in authority. That's an example of the kinds of people that you could be praying for. But I've known this passage to very often be known for, you should be praying for those that are in authority or praying for kings. That's not the main idea of the, of the section. The main idea of the section is, I exhort you as a matter of primary importance to pray for all people and pray in all of these different ways. So I want to bring out this one point, just that to pray in all of these various ways for all of these various people, what does it imply? It implies that you are aware of the people that are around you. You're not just tunnel vision going through life on your own. It implies that you're interested in the people that God has put in your field of vision. And the last thing is it implies that you're concerned about the people that God has put in your field of vision that he's put, had you interact with. If you're not aware, interested, or concerned about people, you're not going to be praying for them at all. They're going to fall through the cracks for sure. So think about that. I was convicted about that. Are you even aware of them? Are you interested in them? And are you concerned enough about them that you would bring them confidently and boldly with intercessory prayer to the Father? Would you do that? And so then ask yourself, does that kind of a mindset, does that kind of a perspective, does that describe your prayer life? Do you pray for the wide variety of people that are in or connected to your life? Or do you have a very narrow group of people that you ever talk to God about? Now, I'll tell you what, that very narrow group of people that you talk to God about, whether they know it or not, they should be thankful that you are praying for them. That's good. And we're not painting that as a bad thing. That's a good thing. God doesn't want you to quit doing that. He just wants you to expand on that and have a sense of an expansive view or concern for humanity the way he has an expansive, expansive view of humanity. Be a little bit less tunnel visioned in that. It would be the idea. So we move on. Verse 2 here says, here's now going to be an example of this wide range of, of groups of people, the variety of people that are connected in your life in some way. Some of them in a very distant way, and this is going to be a quite distant way, although in Paul's instance a little bit closer than the average person. But First Timothy 2.2, 2, we move to the second verse here for Kings. This is a part of the all men here now. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So we start with this example of a subset, a subpart within all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Now this is intended to, to be illustrative of the type of prayer that could be made for one particular class or type of people in these believers' sphere of awareness. Now, this phrase includes all government officials of various ranks is the idea. And so when you look at this, one of the things that first came to my mind was this, and I don't mean to rub you the wrong way here this morning, but if God does it, then it's on him, not me. All who are in authority, it includes those you disagree with as well. It's easy to pray for when you think about people in leadership. 
it's easy to be praying for the ones that are leading in a way that you see fit, that you agree with. It's probably easier for you to pray for me when you're not mad at me, right? Other people in any kind of leadership roles in the church, I'm guessing that when you're disagreeing with them, you're less likely to be praying for them. And the truth is, when you're disagreeing with them is an argument could be made anyway, that that's probably the best time you should be praying for them. One, because it might, it might help to fix the disagreement, resolve it. It's the thing that they probably need most even if they're wrong. You know, if you're mad at me because of something that I said or something that I did, I may have been wrong. In fact, ask my family, the truth is probably 90% chance I was wrong. Okay. So now, now I, I did something to hurt your feelings or to be insensitive or I, maybe I said something that was just wrong. So now what do I need more than anything? Well, I need prayer more than anything else. I, I don't need your hostility. I don't need your passive aggressive behavior. I don't need you to undercut me. I don't need you to tear me down. I don't need you to sow discord. I, the thing I need most is I need you to pray for me. And the truth is that's how I need to respond to conflict even in my life is the number one thing that is needed when there's conflict, whether it's your wife or your coworker or your neighbor or a political figure, a person in authority, in leadership, in the government that you don't agree with. The thing they need more than your criticism, the thing that they need more than your disdain for them is your prayer for them. That doesn't come naturally. The flesh doesn't like that. Doesn't like it at all. And while we're stepping on toes, I'll tell you this, because I've been convicted about these kinds of things. I used to be more into, that, into these, this way of thinking. When we're thinking about praying for people you disagree with, and if it's to include the kings and all those who are in authority, everyone that's in a place of influence in, the, in, in a governmental, societal kind of a way, it's pretty difficult to go from proclaiming or saying, let's go Brandon, to sincerely praying for the leader of our country. Pretty tough transition to make mentally. Not the kind of thing that reflects well on Jesus Christ. Not the kind of thing that represents God's word. And we can get kind of flippant about some of these things. And I'd be lying to say I didn't laugh at that the first time I saw it. But it didn't make it, didn't make it something we should be celebrating. It's directly contrary to the mindset of the word of God. The perspective of the word of God. And I'm not saying that to call anyone out. I just admitted to you that I laughed when I saw it first. But I probably shouldn't have. So how can I have that kind of a perspective of having, wanting to bring these people before the Lord with, a, with an objective that they would lead in a godly way, that they could be saved if they're not saved, that God could give them wisdom and guidance so that it would create the most beneficial set of circumstances possible for people to get saved, and we'll get to that in a second. If I have that kind of a mentality, if I'm saying those kinds of things about those people, if the, if the thing that I'm proclaiming about people in leadership, at least all the ones I disagree with, are all of these kind of just verbally 
verbally obnoxious kinds of things. Something to think about, right? Again, I question whether I should have even said that or not, but pray for me if you didn't like it. All right, those who you disagree with. Now, you think about Paul, and, and you're, you're like, are you sure that that's true? Because I really would love just to justify in some way my disdain and hatred and verbal abuse of all of these people I disagree with in authority. I should be able to do that. That, that should be my mantra, right? Shouldn't I be going through life? Shouldn't I be going through life tearing down and verbally uh, uh, abusing and saying, horribly negative things about everyone I don't agree with? Um, Shouldn't I be allowed to do that? Uh, Certainly Paul doesn't mean the people I disagree with, right? I I certainly don't need to pray for them. Well, the general consensus is that Paul wrote this letter after his first Roman imprisonment. Now, it provides some pretty interesting context to this request to pray for kings and all who are in authority noting that Nero was this notoriously cruel ruler who was emperor at this time from 54 AD to 68 AD. Uh, During the same time Paul's writing this, he's being horribly treated and he's facing the persecution of Nero. It's just a couple of years after this in very quick, short time that Rome burns down and Christians are blamed for it. It doesn't take long before Christians are being fed to wild animals and being burned alive. There's the persecution that Christians are going to be facing is coming at the same time here. He's already facing some of this himself. At the same time, he's saying, pray for all men, including for kings and all who are in authority, not some who are in authority. I I was very convicted by this, friends. Maybe you don't want to be convicted by this because maybe a big part of your life involves, it's like a hobby of yours to spend time with, you know, people, other people, and one of the, t- the number one topics that comes up is all of these people you have disdain for in leadership roles. You know, that is the, one of the most common things that people talk about. Uh, in, in every realm, I'm not even just talking about national leaders here, I'm talking about the le- your bosses at work. I mean, what is water cooler talk normally focus on? Well, not positive things, Right? Those conversations have a way to always fixate on the negative. You know, how you got to drag for a wife at home and how your boss is really unfair and he's somebody who doesn't deserve the position, even never should have even gotten the job. And your local, your local, your, the coach on the local team that's not treating your kid fairly and the, the other guy that's in authority at the, the local police department who keeps treating you unfairly and the people who are in the, in the zoning and the building code office who are, are running th- things amok and they don't know what they're doing and the local city council who, who they're wasting all your money on this, that, and the other thing and then move on to the state government and the regional, regional state, national and, and get all the way to the, to the, all the way across the world and, and you spend your time on, on that. And you're like, man, I don't want to stop doing that. It's a lot of fun. It's one of my favorite things. It's one of my favorite things to do. But Paul's saying, maybe spend that time praying for those people. Now, am I suggesting you shouldn't have an opinion about how all of those things are happening? Am I suggesting that your kid's coach isn't treating him unfairly? Your, your kid's coach very well is treating him unfairly. You just ask my daughter about how I treat her when I coach her, her team. I'm, you're way harder on me, Dad. Yeah, because you're my kid. I expect more out of you. 
So is that fair? No, it's not fair. Does she have a point? Yeah, she does. Do you want me to coach next year? Yeah, well then you brought this on yourself. There, may, there is inequity taking place. There is bad judgment taking place. There are bad laws being written. There are things being promoted that shouldn't be. But is that what Paul is at? Find me one passage. Come up to me afterwards. Find me one passage where Paul is exhorting believers to find all that's broken and wrong in the world and talk about that. That's happening in a, in a way that we couldn't even comprehend. And in the context of that, Paul is saying, pray for these men. I don't want to hear that. I do not want to hear that. So do you pray for all who are in authority? The answer is probably not. Should you? You should if God's word is true. If you think God knows better than you do. If you think God wants you to cast those things to him and, and let him be concerned and worried about those things and he wants you to fulfill the mission and run the race that he has in front of you, he doesn't want you to be sidetracked by these things. If you're convinced that that's true, then you'd learn to give these things over to the Lord. You'd let him work through you for you to have the impact that you can have in a positive way. Meaning, doesn't mean you can't promote people who are godly. It doesn't mean you can't support or even invest in the success of those people getting elected into those positions. It doesn't mean that you can't um, be favorably minded or have a position, a godly position on these different things and that you should never talk about it. But you shouldn't talk about it in a way that you're talking about it negatively more than you're praying about it. There's so many things that, it, it, there's some value to interacting and having discourse with people in a, in a kind of respectful way where you're sharing ideas and sharing perspectives, I do it all the time. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying if you're always focused on this though in a negative light and you're never bringing these things to the Lord in prayer, then you're missing, you're missing the point because you can't actually change very much of these things anyway. You have very little control over it, but there's one who is in control and he says, bring these things to me. There's one who could change the mentality of a person. God is in the business of changing minds and changing lives and changing hearts. You very likely could not convince somebody to change their mind very easily. Just think of yourself. How, how easy is it for somebody to convince you to change your mind? What's well, next to impossible? But a supernatural, all-powerful God who is capable of changing hearts and minds? We're not going to ask him to get involved in this? Because he's the one who actually could bring about some change he could undertake in a way that would be beneficial. Now we come to this word that. Why are, for kings, why are we to be praying for them as a subcategory of all men that we're praying for? Why? Well, that is an explanation of purpose. It explains our desired objective in, in including them in our prayers. Why would we include them in our prayers? Kings and all are in authority. Because they're being so wonderful to us? No, that wasn't happening in Paul's life. Because they're so favorable to the advancement of the gospel? No, they weren't favorable to that. But with what objective in mind? That God could work through those circumstances and in those people's lives to produce this, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. That that would be our objective. So let's break that down a little bit. 
that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. It, it identifies the desired outcome of the prayers for those in authority. Now, this could also be incorporated into the prayers themselves. So, this is part, the way that, that this is understood is that we're going to pray for kings and all those in, in, in authority so that this could be the result, that we would be able to live quiet and peaceable lives, that that would be the objective. Now, you could also pray for that too. You could pray that, Lord, make it possible for us as believers to live quiet and peaceable lives that are described or characterized by godliness and reverence. That's the way to understand this verse. That could be your prayer as you're praying for these people. So when you look at that word, that phrase may lead, it refers to one's daily lifestyle or overall manner of living. Pray, Lord, make, I want to pray for these people so that they, it could be possible for us to live in this way. That our lives could be described in this way. And the believer's life is desired, or the desire that Paul, ha or that Paul has here, he's talking to Timothy, is this desired way of life is described as having two characteristics. One, that it would be quiet. Now, the word refers to tranquility arising from the absence of outward disturbance. The tranquility arising from the absence of outward disturbance. Now the focus is on the outward political and social situations that would interfere with or undermine having this tranquil life that would be best suited to the fulfillment of the mission is the takeaway if I'm kind of losing you a little bit. Now Paul is likely focused on having the ability to remain distant from governmental or political conflict, interference, and persecution. The idea here is that not that we would have a sheltered life. What was the underlying purpose in mind that Paul would have for saying, I, I want to pray for these people that it would be possible for us as believers to have this quiet, the political and social situation would be quiet, it would be, it would be what is the word I'm looking for here? Tranquil, it would be tranquil and it would not interfere with the mission. And so Paul is clearly, he's not saying that you would have a sheltered life, but a life that was free from turmoil that would otherwise thwart or undermine the mission. Paul's life was not quiet. He was involved in conflict, but he was praying for those people that there could be quiet, that they would be able to have this harmonious or this tranquil existence on the political and social spectrum so that they would have freedom of conflict, freedom from interference, freedom from persecution so that we could most effectively or he could as a, as a Christian most effectively and everyone who would follow have the most favorable environment possible for the effective and unhindered preaching of Jesus Christ. Why am I praying for these leaders? I'm praying for these leaders so that I could enjoy as a Christian a way of life that would be free from that conflict, that interference, that persecution. Not that God promises that that would necessarily occur, but uh, Paul realizes that the least amount of conflict and turmoil is going to pro pro prevent or it's going to, sorry, promote the greatest amount of effectiveness as it relates to reaching the lost or preaching Jesus Christ in an unhindered kind of a way. Now, Paul associated a quiet life as one that would be favorable to reaching the lost. Some of you are like, how are you sure that this is mostly referencing the effectiveness or a favorable environment for preaching Jesus Christ? Because the other time primarily that he uses this, this word is found in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. Now he's saying this to these believers in Thessalonica. He's saying, pray that my goal or my objective for you is that you would aspire, this would be your objective, to lead a quiet life to mind your own business 
and to work with your, hand, your own hands as we commanded you. Now that, there's the purpose statement, that, why would I want you to lead a quiet life? That you may walk properly toward those who are outside. And that, our second purpose statement, that you may lack nothing. That you would grow, refers to spiritual maturity or spiritual growth, for lack nothing. But what was the first objective? That you would walk properly toward those who are outside, meaning that you'd have an effective outreach to other people because you would have a good reputation, a good testimony. He wouldn't be involved in this chaos that is associated with political and social upheaval, that you could be free from that interference. And of course, there's some aspect about the persecution, but God, he promised that we would face suffering. We would suffer for Christ's sake, that we would be persecuted for our beliefs. So does that mean you, have to, you, you should never pray that that, you, you, that could be avoided? No, I don't think it'd be wrong to pray for that, but the, the objective is there, pray that we could be left alone, that we wouldn't be interfered with. When you talk about religious freedom, pray that we could have religious autonomy and religious freedom, that that could continue even in this country so that the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ could be communicated and proclaimed boldly. Remember, that's the mission. And so, did this happen in, you know, was this prayer answered in a sense in Paul's, in Paul's life? The answer is no. He was martyred by the government in direct correlation with his faith. He faced all kinds of persecution by the Jewish leaders and authorities of his community, the communities that he went to, because of his faith. He, he experienced something different than this, but he was praying that it could be avoided. Why? Because he saw in many of the towns that he went to, when there wasn't social and political upheaval as a result of his preaching of the message, when he was able to have a quiet life free from interference and persecution, the gospel message went out to more people. He was able to stay longer. Instead of getting chased out of town by a, rev a revolt and, a, and, and people who were in, in uprising, he was able to communicate the gospel sometimes for as long as a, a couple, two to three years at a time. But usually that didn't happen and that undermined his ability to communicate the gospel to more people so that they could hear about Jesus Christ. And actually, as you think about this prayer, God actually used the inability to lead a quiet life to spread the gospel message geographically farther more ra and more rapidly than it otherwise would have. As you understand the historical context here, even in Rome, the apostles were, not, were reluctant to actually move and bring the gospel message further than the boundaries of Jerusalem. Paul is commissioned with a special commission uh, to be the apostles to the Gentiles in part because the original apostles were not fulfilling that mission. What ultimately caused that message to spread like wildfire? Persecution, upheaval, political and social upheaval. So is that something that God could still use? Yeah, but was Paul wrong to say this is something you should pray for? No, this is something we should pray for because it would be advantageous for what? so that we can just have lives that are free from turmoil, lives that are tranquil when it comes to social and political matters? No. So that it would create an environment that is most positive or effective to the communication and the receipt by people of the gospel message. Now what's the second word? We may live quiet and peaceable. These words are, are almost synonyms. In fact, they both can be translated as quiet. They both could be translated as peaceable, peaceful. This term focuses more on actual silence 
or quiet brought about from freedom of internal distress. So the quiet, the first term, again, scholars that are beyond me in the Greek language are saying that term focuses a little bit more on the external side of it, this political and social upheaval, to be free from political conflict, interference and persecution, and the peaceable focuses more on an internal quiet or peace. That is this, this silence where you're not you know, crying out in agony, so to speak, that's brought about from a freedom from internal distress. Now, one of the things that, that I thought about as you think about an internal tranquility or an internal quiet where you're, si- you're able to be silent, so to speak. Outward pressures, persecution, and conflict, what happens? That brings about internal distress. Now, what happens when you have that internal distress and you're agitated inwardly based on those outward things that are happening? Well, then it produces verbal outbursts. It produces complaints and protest. That's as a matter of the flesh driving the bus or the flesh's influence in response to those stimulus. So if the stimulus from externally are these things that are persecution, pressure, conflict, then internally we have this distress and then the way that man naturally deals with it is with these verbal outbursts, complaints, and protests. So what Paul is sort of saying is, is you're talking about being peaceful, they t- those things tend to undermine the mission. They tend to compete with if, even if they don't undermine the mission, they tend to compete with the mission. They tend to com- compete with the primary message that the Christian should be all about. They tend to replace the Christian's primary message where the things that are coming out of your mouth, the things that you're talking about are all focused on this internal distress that you have a result of this external pressure. And if you're not careful and you're not mindful about it and you're not trusting the Lord with this, those are the kinds of things that are going to be, instead of having this quiet, this actual silence or this quiet that's brought about from freedom from that, because you're all worked up about it, those are the things that you're going to be proclaiming. Now it's going to undermine, ultimately, the Christian's intended primary mission. It's going to undermine or replace the Christian's intended primary message. So then we finish with these two characteristics for this verse in all godliness and reverence it indicates accompanying characteristics of such a life what's that life this quiet and peaceful life that we're praying for that's that's part of the reason that we're praying for kings and those who are in authority is so that we could have this kind of a way of life that would be again most effective or conducive to the mission that God has assigned us to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ do you see that as your mission even Uh, that's the thing that's so I would say deceptive is we're so easily deceived into thinking that a different mission should be our mission. And when we do that, we miss the mark because the mission wasn't to fix this. The mission wasn't to save the sinking ship. The mission wasn't to change somebody's opinion about these temporal matters. The mission was to proclaim Jesus Christ to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, to talk about eternal matters, to remember that our citizenship is in heaven and not on earth, to seek to have that kind of a perspective and mindset that transcends the circumstances that we're going through, to have the mind of Christ become our mind as the Spirit of God works to change us into something that we're not. Now, godliness and reverence should characterize this peaceful and quiet life. Now, godliness just refers to beliefs or a mental perspective and then practices that are pleasing to God. It's not complicated. There are certain mental perspectives and beliefs and practices that are pleasing to God. That should be characteristic of the believer's way of life. See, this word describes the whole of the Christian's life 
has the interplay between the knowledge of God, dependence on God, and the observable conduct that emerges from that knowledge and dependence. So you think about, you know something about God, you're depending on God to work in and through your life, to empower your life. That leads to observable conduct that is viewed in terms of that knowledge and dependence that we have as being God-honoring or godly. So if it's God-honoring, it's godly behavior, then it's ultimately going to come from knowing God, trusting and depending on God, and having him work and produce that manner of living in our lives that that would characterize this quiet and peaceful life that we have. Now, reverence refers to respectfully, earnestly, seriously, honorably, and honestly. These are all words that are tied to this Greek word for reverence. Respectfully, earnestly, seriously, honorably, and honestly. It primarily focuses on dignity and decorum. So the idea is having a proper respect and awe for God, which affects both inward intentions and then outward actions. So they're tied together. As I have this proper respect and awe for God, this reverence for God, as that characterizes my manner of living, that's going to affect my thinking and it's going to affect my actions. It's going to lead me to be able to to have that be a characteristic associated with this quiet and peaceful life that I'm seeking. How do I know I'm seeking that? Because God's saying to pray for that. God's saying to pray for that kind of a life. So if I'm praying for that kind of a life, then that's the kind of life that God has in mind for me. Externally quiet, internally quiet, described and characterized by pleasing God or godly way of living that is also flowing from or ultimately flowing from this mindset of reverential awe and respect for God that affects my thinking and then my actions. Now, is that good? Are you sure that that's what God wants? Yes, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Which parts? Is it good that Christians live quiet and peaceful life characterized by godliness and reverence? Yes. Is it good that Christians would be praying for all men, including kings and all those who are in authority? Yes. So how do you know that that's true? Because this verse says that it's true. It, it likely primarily modifies the exhortation to pray for all men, but that includes authorities. But it also can modify and refer to the idea that it's got good and acceptable in the sight of God for us to live quiet and peaceable lives that are characterized by godliness and reverence. So in case you're not sure whether or not praying for all men is God's will, you have this verse. I love it. It's just stated as a fact. There's not, not a lot to it. This is good and acceptable. What? Well, the primary idea, starting with verse 1, is that you would be praying for all men. That's God's will. You can be certain about this aspect of God's will. There's a lots of parts of God's will that aren't clearly revealed. Not this. This is clearly revealed. I exhort you, I urge you to pray as a matter of first priority or first importance. Pray for all men. That's my will. Okay. You got one thing that you know for sure now. Now the question is, will you trust God enough? Will you depend on him enough? Will you have your focus on him enough that he could produce a way of living that incorporates these instructions and exhortations in your life? Well, no, because I don't want them to be a part of my life. Okay. But don't say it's because it's unclear. It's very clear. Now, our last verse here for this morning is verse 4. This is in reference to or it modifies the reference to God our Savior. What do we know about God our Savior? Why would this be important to him? Because he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
You have to read all this together. That's where the sentence ends right there. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of, or in the opinion of, is the idea of God our Savior. What, what is good? That you'd be praying for all men, including kings and all those in authority. That you would be praying that you could lead a quiet and peaceful life described by godliness or characterized by godliness and reverence. Why? Because God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's why when you say, hey, you're pulling this idea of the quiet and peaceable life being primarily thought of by Paul in the context of effectiveness of the mission, you're pulling that out of thin air. No, it's coming right from this. The reason we're praying for all men and we're praying for these things is God wants all men to be saved, including kings, and he wants to have the most conducive circumstances for that to be achieved or, or realized. That's God's desire. Also, you wouldn't have to read much about the Apostle Paul to realize that contrary to our way of prioritizing our thinking and prioritizing the things that we're all about, Paul wasn't concerned about any of it above and beyond preaching Jesus Christ. Now, was there times where he probably disagreed and had strong opinions and maybe even expressed them? Sure. But first and foremost, as he says over and over again, we preach him, we proclaim him, he tells Timothy, he tells Titus, preach him, preach him, preach him, preach him, preach him. He says, I determined to know nothing among you save Christ and him crucified. Are you sure that Paul was mission-focused? Yes, he was mission-focused. He says, I've lived through this. I've had plenty. I've had times where I've had wanted. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've had all of these things happen to me, but my focus is on running the race that's in front of me. And I'm not going to be confused about what that race is. It's to proclaim Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done for a lost and dying world. That's the mission. And part of doing that, I'm going to help believers grow in their faith by teaching sound doctrine that I learned from Jesus Christ and was revealed to me by God himself. But between striving for the furtherance of the gospel and ministering to the growth of other believers, that's what Paul was about, full stop, period. There was nothing more than that. That's why he could end his life instead of wondering had he wasted his life and getting sucked into all these different avenues of things that have no eternal value. He didn't have to wonder that. He could say, I have run my race, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself will give me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. He could have a confident expectation in that he would hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You and I cannot have that expectation if we're distracted by all of these other things that are of secondary or no importance in the grand scheme of eternity. And if you're not convinced by that, pray, pray on that. Now, he desires that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's concern. Now, praying for all people is good and pleasing in the opinion of God because he desires everyone to be saved. God's desire is clear. Sadly, many refuse to accept, believe, or trust in Jesus Christ. So though God desires that all would be saved, not all are saved. The only way you're going to be saved is by putting your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. John says this in John 1.12, but as many as received him, what does it mean to receive something? To be persuaded so as to put your trust, your faith, your confidence in somebody. And who is it here? In him. Who is that? Jesus Christ. What did Jesus Christ do? 
due. He died on the cross as the spotless Lamb of God in the place of sinners like you and I. He bore your sin in his own body on the tree so that you could live instead of being continue on dead in trespasses and sins. All of your sin was placed on Jesus Christ and when he died, he cried out, it is finished. The payment has been made. A satisfactory payment has been accepted by the Father as evidenced by him raising Jesus from the dead, victorious over death, sin, and the grave. As God the Father would say, I looked on that payment of my son as fully satisfying the debt that was owed by all men. The question isn't, has sin been dealt with? Sin has been dealt with. The question is, will you put your confidence in? Will you receive the life-giving salvation that Jesus offers as a result of what he did for you when you didn't deserve it, when you were his enemy, when you were dead, when you were lifeless, when you were hopeless, when you were hellbound? Will you put your trust in what Jesus Christ already did for you? That's the gospel. There's, not, there's nothing more to it. It's not, what can I do for Jesus? It's, what has Jesus done for me? And will I trust in that exclusively apart from any human effort, human works, human righteousness, which God says cannot be mixed with grace or it wouldn't be grace anymore? So you say, as many as received him, what was the result of receiving him? To them he gave the right to become children of God. To who? To those who believe in his name, not those who are proving the authenticity of their faith by working really hard, by producing a certain way of living, but by those who, to those who believed and received what Jesus had done for them, it's a gift. It has to be freely given. It has to be freely received apart from human works. Does God want to produce works in your life? Yes. Does he want to use your life? Yes. Does he want you to be a positive reflection on him? Yes. Was that his plan for you from the beginning? Yes. Is that a condition or, or some part that you have to play on the front end in order to be born into his family? No. The only way that you're saved is by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ's finished work alone. That is it. That means it's apart from, apart from works. So you're thinking about all men. God wants all men to be saved. Will all, be, all men be saved? No. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, how does this occur? How are all men saved? How could somebody be saved? What's a necessary prerequisite to this? It says right in this verse, he desires all men to be saved by coming to the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth. You see that in Romans 10, 17, this is the principle, not the context. The context is actually in reference to the turning back of the nation of Israel back in faith to God having rejected him. He came to his own, but his own received him not. That's the context of Romans 10, just by the way. But this principle is still true, even though that's the context. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God, the knowledge of the truth. Unless somebody hears the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for them, they could never be saved because they wouldn't know what message to respond to. So what's the truth? Well, it's the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. So remember, Paul has this willingness to proclaim Christ and stay focused on the mission and his willingness to do that led to the gospel message making inroads in the palace in Rome itself, in Caesar's house. Now, we don't know, did Nero ever hear the gospel? We don't know that. But this is a convicting reminder. While we're not even praying for these people, we're not even, we're not even praying for their salvation. 
We're not praying that through them God could produce uh, circumstances and even an environment that would be most conducive to the spread of the gospel. While we're not even praying for that, Paul is sharing the gospel through his bonds, being chained to Roman soldiers 24 hours a day. While that is happening, he's sharing the gospel. The gospel is making other people, his proclamation of the gospel is making other believers bold so that the gospel is going everywhere, including into the palace, into the household of Caesar, God told Paul, you're going to be an ambassador for me, even to kings. That was true of King Agrippa. That's true of even the household of Nero. Could he have ever done that if he just went about life with complete disdain for Nero or for those that were in authority? If his response to the Jewish authorities' persecution of him was to just despise them, spend all of his time trying to tear them down? That wasn't his perspective at all. His perspective in response to that persecution was he loved them. He says, I would, I would even wish that I could give up my own soul for the souls of my countrymen. He wanted his brethren, his, his physical brethren, meaning his, his nas- national brethren, the Jewish people, he wanted them desperately to get saved. Maybe that should be our perspective. We think about this, pray for all men. Who's on your prayer list? Ask yourself that. Who's on your prayer list? Has the scope of your prayer been too narrow? Mine has been. Has yours been too narrow too? Remember that God connects this primary exhortation to his desire that all men be saved. They're not separate. They're part of the same passage, the same context. He has this exhortation that we be praying for all men as informed by this desire that he has that all men would be saved. So even our prayer for authority figures ultimately is focused on effective gospel outreach. It's easy to, it's easy to forget what the focus is supposed to be. It's easy to be distracted from the mission. Maybe you have been. I know I have been. But maybe this could be an encouragement. Maybe it could be instructive. Maybe it could be convicting as a reminder to us about what our focus really needs to be. So pray for all men. Let's pray here this morning. Dear Father, thank you for this time we can spend together in your word. Thank you that you could even remind us of this important exhortation or urging that you have in our lives that prayer would be a significant part of our lives. That it wouldn't just be prayer for ourselves or our own situations, but we would pray for all men, including those that are in authority, with a mindset first and foremost that they would be saved that there would even be an environment that would be conducive to that. The spread of the gospel could be rapid, that it could be far-reaching. Pray that we would ask for boldness, that you could use us as a result of that evangelistic outreach, that we would have hearts that want to share your message of life and hope with others that we come into contact with. In Jesus' name, amen.